suficiente I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me for a scripture reading to Matthew chapter 5. I'll begin reading at verse 1. I want to take a short break from the sermon series on the book of Exodus, and for the next several weeks we're going to have a a brief series on the Beatitudes, and so this morning we're going to uh, hear a sermon on the first Beatitude, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. Let us now hear God's word. Seeing the crowds, he, that is Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Thus far, the reading of God's word made his blessing upon the preaching and teaching of it. Congregation of Christ, there are similarities between Moses and Jesus. Moses and Jesus both delivered divine revelation from mountains. On Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb, Moses received God's law and the people heard the law from the mountain. However, at Mount Sinai, there was darkness. The people trembled in great fear when they saw what was going on and when they heard the Word of God. Great fear struck the community, the people of Israel. The awesome sight and sounds made them tremble. Jesus is on a mountain, and Matthew records the great sermon on the mount. The other gospel that records briefly a more abridged version of the sermon on the mount is Luke, Luke chapter 6. Jesus, however, sits on a mountain, and the people, without fear, come to the great shepherd And they are taught, and they hear him gladly, and they were amazed because he taught as one who had authority, not like the scribes, not like the religious elite, but he taught as one who had authority. The good shepherd takes a seat, 
and he teaches. It's as if, and I've done this before, I, I pull up a chair here. It's time for the sermon. And I take a seat, and I start teaching and preaching. That was the mode. That was the way in which they preached and taught people. There were no pulpits. There was a chair, or you sat down. Or I just sat among you right there and just started teaching you. That's what Jesus does. It's like gathering the hens. (laughs) And the wings of the mother over the hens. There's imagery of the Psalms. At verse uh, 1 of chapter 5, Jesus went up on a mountain and the disciples followed him. Which mountain this was, we're not sure. We shouldn't let that concern us at this point. But Jesus, the word of God who became flesh, sat down and taught the disciples and the crowd because we know at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the crowd responded. They heard him. Jesus preaches, note the present tense there because he preaches this message to us today. He preaches a message for the citizens of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. This sermon is for Christians. He preaches God's law, but he expounds upon God's law, providing a deeper interpretation for the people of God, and how to live in God's kingdom. You've heard it said, do not commit adultery, but I say unto you, he who lusts has committed adultery in his heart. You heard it said, you shall not murder, but if you say to your brother, Racha, if you hate your brother, you're guilty of murder in your hearts. You see, Jesus takes it to a deeper level, deeper than the religious elite in his day. Despite the opinions of his opponents, then and even today, Jesus doesn't abolish God's moral law in his coming, but rather fulfills all the law and the prophets by his perfect obedience his active obedience. Jesus always addresses the motive of the heart. I say that over and over again in my sermons. He always addresses the heart. Because we need to hear it, lest we're dull in hearing. And let's confess we are dull in hearing. And dull in doing. Maybe I'm just preaching to myself, I guess. Jesus truly teaches that the heart is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. For the religious elite of his day and today among Jews, sin was considered an external transgression against the law didn't relate to the hearts. For a more contemporary example, there's a a Jewish 
commentator, radio commentator, personality by the name of Dennis Prager, and he was recently interviewed by a Catholic podcaster. And the Catholic gentleman asked him about pornography, if that was sin and evil, to engage in that. And this Jewish commentator did not see it as evil and sin because the person engaging in it is not actually doing it. Oh, yeah. Unless it's acted upon, then it's sin. Jesus deals with this gross misunderstanding and misinterpretation because same issues were the case in his day. Jesus says, for I tell you, In the Sermon on the Mount, he says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The heart. He deals with the heart. When you think about it, why do people say that they're basically good? Why do they say they're basically good and not sinners? For most people, they define sinners as the external action, and not matters of the heart. I haven't committed adultery. I haven't murdered. I haven't stole anything. Therefore, I'm not a sinner. The Sermon on the Mount is for Christians, and it's a sermon that teaches us how to live as citizens in God's kingdom in this present evil age. It teaches us what a converted Christian whose heart has been transformed by the gospel, by the Spirit of God, now lives in this present evil age. It's not a sermon about a new religious ethic. It's not a sermon that teaches the way to earn your way into God's kingdom through obedience and to stay in God's kingdom by your obedience. That's even being taught today. Jesus begins his sermon. Begins his sermon with the Beatitudes. He begins his sermon with God's grace. Just like in the law in Exodus 20, for I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, who brought you out of the house of slavery, God's grace, and then the law of God follows. So too, Jesus begins this treatise, the sermon, expounding on God's law, but he first does so by showing and teaching God's grace in the life of the Christian. Blessed are you. Blessed are you. Eight Beatitudes. These aren't eight different categories of different Christians. These aren't eight different Christians here. Or eight different types of Christians. These are eight characteristics of the one Christian person. In other words, the Christian is poor in spirit. The Christian is merciful. The Christian is meek. He is all these things. 
by the grace of God. By the grace of God. This morning we're going to hear a sermon on blessed are the poor in spirit. I had to give you that long introduction to give you context to to help us see that this Sermon on the Mount has a specific purpose. And he prefaces the sermon with these eight blessings. He wants to demonstrate God's grace to us first. He first declares, Christ declares the first point, the declaration of Christ, the blessing Blessed are the poor in spirit, or happy are those who are poor in spirit. Psalm 1, happy is the man, blessed is the man. Now blessed, or this idea of happiness, doesn't denote one's emotional or psychological state at the present moment. It's not something that comes and goes. When Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, he's declaring a state of existence, a present and permanent state of existence. Blessed or blessedness has to do with one's state in relationship to his God or her God. This is who you are before God. You are blessed. Jesus is declaring to the Christian That before the Father, you are blessed. The blessed have been forgiven by God, reconciled to God, and at peace with God solely through faith in the King of the kingdom, our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed are you, or blessed are you, Psalm 32 I read earlier, blessed is the man whose sins and trespasses are forgiven. That's a permanent state. That's the present state of the blessed man or woman. Because God is not fickle. God doesn't change his mind. Those whom he loves, he forgives and he cleanses and he washes And this is all done and merited by the blood of Jesus. That's why in your trial, that's why in your suffering, you can still say, I have been blessed by God. And I dare to say that that is one of the hardest things to say in the Christian life. When you're suffering, and you can still say, I am blessed. God has blessed blessed me. And that blessing is not contingent upon my circumstances. That is what Christ declares to you, Christian. That is the comfort and assurance that he brings to you and me through Jesus Christ. So when you have a bad day, can you still say, indeed, I am blessed of God? Or is the glass always half empty? Congregation, 
Jesus declares to His sheep, His people, that they are blessed by the Father. And His blessing rests upon you and me despite the sorrows and the trials and the challenges and the changes in life. Otherwise, if that were not the case, can you trust God? Can you trust Him? Then it becomes works-related, doesn't it? I have to get my heart right before I can receive His blessing. I have to merit His blessing. No, Jesus declares, you are blessed. And this blessing is not only in the present, but it's going to be fully known and experienced and realized in the future. And we'll see more of that in a few moments. When we talk about His kingdom come. The declaration of Christ, blessed, happy is the man who is in relationship with the one true God through Jesus Christ our Lord, receiving forgiveness of sins, life everlasting, reconciliation with God. Oh Lord, that you shall look upon me and call me blessed. Oh Lord, that you should look upon me and call me blessed. Blessed are the humble. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Let's look at the condition of the blessed. The condition of the blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus declares that the blessed ones are poor in spirit. Who are the blessed that are poor in spirit? The word poor doesn't just mean being below the poverty line. It means extreme poverty. It has the idea of a beggar on a sidewalk with his head down, his shoulders crouched over, and his hand is out. Can't even look you in the face. Completely hopeless and helpless. No resources, no ability to get out of his poverty on his own. That's the idea of the poor physically or materially. But what does Jesus say? What does it mean when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Well, first I want to answer that question by, by first looking at what poor in spirit does not mean. Poor in spirit does not mean materially poor. Well, aren't you stating the obvious, obvious here? Well, I am when you look at this text, but in, in Luke chapter 6, Jesus is recorded as saying only, blessed are you who are poor. Not poor in spirit, but poor. And so people have taken that to mean that blessed are those who are not only poor in spirit, but those who are materially and physically poor. 
There is a sense in which Jesus came to deliver the physically and monetarily poor. But he came to save them in in the same way that he came to save the rich. The physically, monetarily, financially rich. So poor in spirit here doesn't mean physically poor, nor does it mean a life committed to voluntary poverty or taking a vow to live poor, a poor life. This was especially common in the medieval period with the monastics in the Roman Catholic Church. This was a, it was very common with St. Francis of Assisi. Taking on this vow of poverty, that's what Pope Francis did before he became Pope. He took this vow of poverty, placing himself in a position of poverty, making himself nothing physically and monetarily. And these are the proof texts that are used to support that. But the Bible doesn't teach that physical or material poverty is something to be desired or pursued. To enter a life of poverty focuses more upon the individual. And therefore, what does that say to the cross of Jesus? What does that say to his sacrifice? People who hold this view enter a life of poverty which focuses more upon individual works to merit that blessed state with God. Undermining the sacrifice of Jesus and placing emphasis on whose sacrifice? Man's sacrifice. That's what poor in spirit does not mean. So what does it mean then? What does poor in spirit mean? Well, the poor in spirit are those who confess their spiritual lowliness before God. They're in a position before God where they trust in Him alone to meet their great spiritual need. Their condition is such that they recognize that they have a broken heart, a contrite heart. They know their weakness. They know their humanity. And they know, here's an important word, they know their creatureliness before their Creator. They know their creatureliness before their Creator. That He is God and I am not. This has to do more, has to do more with humility and lowliness and creatureliness than it has to do with knowing sin. Now the pride of sin comes into play here. But it's talking about the man who is blessed is one who has humility and recognizes his creatureliness before God. That's who the poor in spirit is. Apart from God, they have no good thing 
and they totally depend on him for everything, spiritual and physical. But there's more to the condition. There's more to the condition. A man by the name of Herman Ritterboss wrote this, and I think he's absolutely right. He says that the poor in spirit represent the socially oppressed, those who suffer from the power of injustice and are harassed by those who only consider their own advantage and influence. And this is common in Old Testament. When the poor are used in the Old Testament, it has to do with the faithful of God, the believers in Yahweh, who suffer at the hands of wicked men, wicked nations, wicked kingdoms. The poor are associated with those who believe and trust God, but are oppressed in society. Think about what's happening in this country. If you're a Christian and you love life and you state your conviction on the matter, what happens? If you're a Christian in the Middle East or Far East Asia, in predominantly Muslim countries, Islamic countries, what happens? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who humble themselves before God in their spirits, knowing that He sees your brokenness, He sees your plight, and He meets your need. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We're going to get to that, but I need to say this now. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are lowly in spirit, even in the midst of these persecutions and oppressions and suffering at the hands of evil men. Because your kingdom, the kingdom that you belong to, is far superior, infinitely superior, than any kingdom on this earth. And King Jesus will have the first and last word. Blessed are you. The very idea of the poor in spirit is countercultural. It goes against the very spirit of this world, which is pride and rich in spirit, a boastful spirit. This condition of poor in spirit is not something that is inherent in us, inherent in humanity. We are born puffed up. We are born dethroning God and enthroning ourselves. Even in the Christian life, we struggle with this. We pride ourselves in ourselves. Did you hear that? We pride ourselves in ourselves. There's an inherent sinful condition called pride that must be rooted out by someone outside of ourselves, namely God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Listen to the words of Isaiah. If you're taking notes, I'm going to quote, reference some passages from Isaiah. Isaiah 57, verse 15 says, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. 
Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, the Lord says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim, proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Jesus came to set free the brokenhearted, the poor, those oppressed. Isaiah 66, verses 1 and 2. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. You see, you see here how God establishes that he is creator and we are creature? Don't blur the two. That's what's going on here. The poor in spirit understand the distinction. God says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me and what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Christ our Lord Christ our Savior is also our example. For He came in humility. According to His humanity, He was poor in spirit. That is, He took upon Himself in a humble estate, completely entrusting Himself to His Father in heaven. He came to the poor in spirit and he brought good news to the poor and needy in spirit to a people who were bondage to sin, death, and hell and saved us and freed us from the spirit of bond, a spirit of bondage, of pride and envy and jealousy and evil so that by his grace and spirit we might humble ourselves before him. Humble yourselves before God, says Peter. Humble yourselves before God. Cast all your anxieties upon Him, for He cares for you. That's someone who is poor in spirit. The mark of a true Christian is one who is poor in spirit. How do you view yourself? Who are you in your spirit? Who are you? What condition do you have? What condition do I have? Christ declares the poor in spirit blessed. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Lastly, the possession of the poor in spirit. The, the poor in spirit possess, or can be translated, for theirs belongs the kingdom of heaven. You think of, about children, to such belong the kingdom of heaven. Similarly, 
for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They possess, they don't own the kingdom, but they possess the kingdom because they're citizens of the kingdom. And note the present, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They are blessed now, and theirs is the kingdom now. It is present. He doesn't say, for theirs shall be the kingdom, but no, theirs is the kingdom. Christians are the poor in spirit and therefore blessed citizens of his kingdom by his grace and not by our merits or any inherent goodness that we think we have. You need to ask the question, well, what's this, what's this kingdom that's being talked about here by Jesus? Well, this is a loaded question. It has many characteristics. The nature of the kingdom is lo- a loaded question. Essentially, the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is God's reign and rule, not only in the church, but in this world. Not only in the church and in the world, but in his people. When Jesus Christ came, he ushered in the kingdom because where the king is, there is the kingdom. And he is here now by his spirit and his word. The king is here and here is the kingdom as well. And we as his people who have been transformed by God and his spirit, we have the kingdom in us. That's why Jesus says, for theirs is the kingdom. You belong to Jesus. You belong to his kingdom. You've been transferred out of the domain and kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of his beloved son. Yes, you may be an American citizen, but that's nothing. You're a citizen of Christ's kingdom. First and foremost. And then you take up the responsibilities as being an American citizen. And Jesus teaches us in this sermon how to be a citizen of his kingdom. How to walk in that new life. How to walk with peace in God. To know the healing and forgiveness of God. The kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is that place and state of shalom, peace. That peace that you know in your heart and soul and spirit is because the kingdom has come upon you, the kingdom of peace and righteousness. The kingdom extends beyond the church to the whole world. And Christ rules over all at the Father's right hand until all of his enemies are made a footstool, are subdued, until he ushers in the kingdom in the last day when the kingdom will come in power and glory. We are blessed of God. And we received an inheritance, the kingdom of God. And now listen carefully, friends. Therefore, the kingdom of God isn't a reward. Okay? It isn't a reward 
for our obedience, but the result of God's grace. God's grace toward the poor in spirit. It's not a reward. It's the result of grace. And the kingdom will come. It's already. It is now. We, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, but it's not yet. It will come when Christ hands over the kingdom to his Father, 1 Corinthians 15. And the new heavens and earth, new earth are ushered in. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Congregation, what view do you have of yourself? Do you see yourself poor in spirit? Or do you see yourself sufficient in spirit? Self-sufficient. I need no one. I am my own man. I don't need to humble myself to anyone. Or have you come to recognize that we are beggars and no amount of money or wealth or possessions or self-help can fill the void in our hearts? Do you see yourself as a beggar in need of spiritual food and drink? Jesus. You see yourself in need of Jesus. What does this look like? It looks like this. The Christian who humbles himself before God. The one who ordains all things that come to pass. Will always keep and protect and preserve his children. And keep them in that wonderful state of blessedness. But not only that, it changes the way we view offenses against us, it changes the way we think about ourselves. I remember watching an interview with Mike Tyson. Some of you remember Mike Tyson, the boxer. When I was in high school, he was the premier boxer, knocked out guys within 15 seconds of the first round. He, was, he went to prison for I forgot what. He was humbled in prison, and he was asked a question how he dealt with criti criticism against him and all kind of evil threats against him and the like. He says, I get in my head and think I'm somebody and then I'm easily offended. But when I know I'm nobody, I can never be offended. And I thought about that. I'm like, that's, that's pretty interesting. There's some truth to that. When I recognize, I'm going to alter that quote a little bit. When I think I'm somebody before God, when I exalt myself before God, I'm easily offended because I make it all about me. I think I'm rich in spirits. But when I know that I'm nobody apart from God, uh, with God, when I know that I'm nobody, but I'm in Christ, and found in Christ, and humbled by Christ, 
then I could never be offended. Because I give it to Christ. I give it to him. And I view myself, not how other people view me, but how he views me. I view myself as somebody who is poor in spirit, who is needy, a beggar, in need of true spiritual food and drink. Someone who needs Jesus. Because apart from him, I'm utterly lost and hopeless and helpless. And I'm I'm sure that you can say the same for yourself, Christian. I hope you're saying the same for yourself. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, we thank you that you, by your mercy, have set us apart for yourself. And that you, O Lord, by your grace and mercy, have humbled us to see our need, to make us low. So that when we see and view ourselves, we can, O Father, come to you with our weakness and creatureliness, knowing that you are creator, you are God, and that you look upon us in in favor because of Christ and his merit and work. Oh, Father, we pray that you, O Lord, would teach us what it means to be poor in spirit, that you would teach us what it means that we are in a state of existence in relationship to you that is in the present and in the future. That relationship is brought to us only through Christ. So we pray, O Father, that you will instill in us the joy of your salvation, that you will instill in us your peace, the peace of the kingdom of God. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.